Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we bow before you again, thankful that you have brought us to this place this day to worship you in truth and spirit, knowing left to ourselves that we would have no desire, left in our sins we would continue in them. But we thank you, Father, that in your grace and your mercy that you drew us with the cords of love that you saved us from our sins and that you have given us a new heart that desires to worship you in truth and spirit. We come to you knowing, Father, that you have not left us to our own ignorance, but you have given us the very words of God for us to study so that we might understand them and rightly apply your truth to our life so that we might know that we are your children. And we pray, Father, that as we study your word this day, that we might have that assurance from your word. We thank you, Father, for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who spoke these words some 2,000 years ago. And not only were they true then, but they have been true throughout the ages and will continue to be true throughout the ages. And we give you praise and honor and glory for that. We pray, Father, that you would work in our midst. Send your spirit, for we know that all is vain unless your spirit comes. We know that he's able to make those that are spiritually dead alive. And that he is able to take those who are spiritually alive and grow them in grace and knowledge of your truth to where that they become more and more like Christ. Father, we pray for our sister churches throughout the world that as they meet this day, that your word would be proclaimed and that many would come into your kingdom and your saints would be sanctified. We thank you for how you continue to work in our church and we pray, Father, that you would be pleased to continue to add unto our number. We thank you for your many blessings that you bless us with and even this blessing that has been mentioned today of the gift that you have given to our church for a new instrument, and we praise you, for we know that you are the one that has provided this through your people. And we pray, Father, that it would be used for your glory and your honor. We pray, Father, that you would be with those unable to be with us. You know their reasons and needs. Minister to those who or not well, we pray that your healing hand would restore their health and that they would give testimony of your goodness in their life. Pray for those who would be away, that you would give them safety and that you would bring them back. Bless them as they worship elsewhere this day. We pray most of all, Father, for those who may not be here due to the lack of concern for their own spiritual condition work in their hearts so that they might repent and return and not forsake the assembling together of the brethren. Bless our time and may all that would be said would be pleasing in your sight. And it's in Christ's name that we pray and for his sake and glory. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 7 and we'll pick up where we left off last week, beginning with verse 24, reading through verse 27. Matthew 7, beginning with verse 24. Therefore, 
Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the wind blew and beat on the house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. Now everyone who hears these things, these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the wind blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. In these verses, verses 24 through 27, Christ gives us a conclusion to what He has already spoken to us about earlier, which can be summarized in this way. You must put into practice what I have taught you, or you will have an awful, destructive ending. What is Christ's major concern for you and me? Application. He wants to make sure that we put into practice the Word of God. And He's been stressing this throughout chapter 7, as you have seen many times. We know that He has given us three tests so that everyone is able to examine himself to make sure that he is in the faith, to make sure that he is a true Christian. Jesus understands how we can be deceived, how easy it is for us to allow religious things to cause us to think that we are okay and not deal with the heart, but simply deal with those things that are religious. We must understand that he calls us time and time again, not only Jesus, but throughout the epistles we see the same exhortation that man is to examine himself. We are to examine ourselves very closely so that we might understand the truth and rightly apply the truth to our lives so that we might know that we are Christians. We see throughout the gospel that no one was able to fool Jesus. He always had an answer for any question that came to him, even as a 12-year-old boy, and he was found there in the temple teaching the wisest of the wise as far as religion was concerned, and they were astonished at what he knew at the age of 12. And when he started his ministry, he dealt with the most powerful individual other than God when it comes to spiritual things, and that was Satan himself. And there, as he defended the Word of God and stood strong in the Word of God and showed Satan that he was mightier than him and that he had all the answers as he defeated Satan, as Satan tempted him on three different occasions. And he also showed the religious leaders of his day that they were no match for him, even though time and time again, They tried to entangle him and test him and tried to trip him up. They could not. Never was there and never will there ever be another man like Jesus Christ when it comes to wisdom and knowledge and understanding man's spiritual need. 
No one has ever taught like him. His sermons, we could say, was never boring. Now, I can't say that about my sermons. I know there's been time my sermons have been boring. But Jesus' sermons were never boring. They were always interesting. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone accepted what he said. Matter of fact, we know that the religious leaders, they simply got mad. I've had that happen on my sermons, too. I've had people get mad at what I said. Sometimes I have to remind them, look, folks, I'm just the messenger. You're getting mad at God. You're getting mad at God's Word. And that's the same thing that happened on those occasions there in the gospel. They were getting mad at Jesus, but really and truly they were mad at God. Of course, Jesus being God's own Son, him, him, He Himself being God. Now, there were those that did not like His message, but yet He had the words of life. And He knew all men. He knew all men and their thoughts. And therefore, there were times that He did not commit Himself to all men. Now, that's a very interesting thing, isn't it? We see that in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 2. Beginning in verse 23, it says, Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. I mean, isn't that wonderful? Many believed in his name. I mean, a revival was taking place, right? Wrong. It says, When they saw the signs which he had done, but Jesus did not commit himself to them. Why? Because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of him for he knew what was in them. So we see there were times that Jesus would not commit himself to those even though they, quote, believed. So we see there is a belief that is not a biblical saving belief and that was those individuals that are spoken here in John chapter 2. No one knows you and me better than Christ. And he explains how important it is for his truth to be applied to our life. Now, the last three sermons we have looked at, and it's been pointed out that there are many religious people who are deceived. Many who will stand on that day thinking that they're going to enter into heaven because of all of these different things that they mentioned, casting out demons, wonderful signs, all of these things, and Jesus tells them, depart from me, I never knew you, you lawless ones. Now those were not, quote, the lost people. Those were what? Those were the church members that Jesus is speaking of here. These were in the visible church. And we see how Satan is such a great deceiver leading many down this path of destruction to an eternal damnation. Here they are at the very gates of heaven and they're told, depart from me. I never want to see you again. And they're cast into eternal hell. I mean, this is a great warning for all of us to make sure that we have truly repented and come to Christ and we look to Christ and Christ alone for our salvation. I mean, if you value your soul, 
and realize that you're headed for the final judgment and you will, every single one of us, one day will stand before Jesus Christ and we will have to give an account. That in itself should cause us to do a self-examination because quite unavoidable is this final fate if we are not in Christ. And I pray that none of us would hear those words said to us. We must be ready. The Apostle John puts it this way. Every man that has this hope in him purifies himself just as he, speaking of Christ, is pure. 1 John 3, 3. You cannot purify yourself without examining yourself. Right? You must examine yourself to be able to purify yourself. You must examine yourself to know what you must put off and put on. Now, not examining yourself opens the door for Satan to deceive you. He doesn't want you to test yourself. He doesn't want you to examine yourself. Satan takes great joy in deceiving people and leading people to an eternal hell. He wants you to be satisfied with a little bit, a little dab. You remember years ago, a little dab would do you. Some of you remember that. That's when I had hair. A little dab would do you, you know. That, that's some people with their religion. A little dab would do you. Well, if I go to worship on Sunday morning, get a little dab, I'm satisfied. Well, that's not biblical Christianity. Knowing Christ as Lord is clearly implied in this passage. But the truth more directly addressed is the one's profession of faith must be connected with faith and obedience. Now let me say at the very beginning here, I'm going to be talking about our works. But in no way am I saying that our works save us. Don't leave this sermon today and say the pastor said that you're saved by your works. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm going to be saying is that your works prove that you are saved. Do you understand that? No works, then you're not saved. If there's true biblical works, then it proves that you're saved. Now, I'm going to prove this from Scripture and this passage that we're looking at here. I mean, no matter how loudly one affirms that he has accepted Jesus' teaching, that he has accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, unless he is a doer of the Word, his profession counts for nothing. Do you understand what I'm saying? Unless he's a doer of the Word, I don't care what he says. He must be a doer of the Word. Or his profession is for nothing. Listen to what A.W. Pink says. They who trust in a form of godliness which is devoid of the power are building their hopes upon a foundation of sand. Not only is a bare profession insufficient for the saving of a soul, but it is an insult to Christ himself. You hear that? A bare profession is an insult to Christ himself. It is a wicked thing to call Jesus Christ Lord while you continue in your sin and do your own will. I want to repeat that. It's a wicked thing to call Jesus Christ as Lord while continuing to do your own will and in your own sin. 
to profess to obey Jesus Christ while you treat His commandments as with contempt. And there's many that treat His commandments with contempt. I remember when I was in high school, and I can remember the kids that went to church with me, and I wish I could say there was a few, but that wasn't the case. The majority come to church on Sunday, but then comes the weekend, Friday night, out getting drunk, having sex, doing all sorts of things. But then back at church on Sunday, professing to be a Christian, but violating God's Word, not obeying God, living a life just like all the other lost people, even though they gave up a profession of knowing Christ. Sad. Sad how many people are deceived, thinking that they can live a worldly life and still they're going to enter into heaven. Do you not see that it is obedience which is a mark of a disciple of Christ, distinguishing you from being a child of Satan? As John 14, 15 says, If you love me, you will obey my commandments. No ends but ifs about it. You will obey my commandments. That's the words of Jesus. Now as we study these verses, we must see how important it is to make the right application of Christ's sermon so that we know that we know Christ as Lord and Savior. So how do we know? How do we know for sure that we will not hear those words that were previously mentioned there in verse 21 through 23? How do we know that when we stand before the Lord that we will not hear those words, depart from me, I never knew you? That's what we're going to be looking at. Well, first of all, Jesus points out that whoever hears his teaching and does them is like a wise man. A few moments ago, Dirt read for us Proverbs 29, and it shows us a wise man and a fool over and over again. Who's the wise man and who's the fool? And likewise, we see it in this particular passage. Jesus is talking about a wise man and a fool. And it seems very clear that many have misunderstood what Jesus is saying. Even there's commentary. Uh, commentators who, who disagree among themselves pertaining to what Jesus is saying here. So we must be very careful and we must do exegesis, not eisegesis. You know what eisegesis is? It's reading into the text. No, we must let the text tell us what it's saying. Now remember what is so important about any text that we look at. I hope you know by now. Context. Remember? Leave it in his context. And we must leave it in his context here. Jesus has been doing what? Jesus has been warning his listeners about being what? About being deceived, right? Now he doesn't change from these verses to the next verses. He doesn't go to another subject. No, he's still dealing with that. Don't be deceived. And he's going to give explanation, who's the wise man, who's not deceived, and who's the fool, who is deceived. Those are the two individuals that he's dealing with. So he deals with something more searching than what constitutes a sinner accepting Jesus Christ 
as his Savior. He's going deeper. Now, it's true that every sinner who exercises a saving faith by looking to Christ is a wise man. There's no doubt about that. And he's eternally secure. And that anyone who trusts in himself for salvation is a fool. And there's many fools who are trusting in their self. They're trusting in what they've done instead of what Christ has done. But don't get me wrong. When Christ does something in your life, then you will be doing something. Now, this isn't Jesus' main teaching here as far as accepting Christ as Lord and Savior. What he's speaking about is something else. He's not speaking about the object and the ground of our saving faith. He's not talking about justification here. What he's dealing with is sanctification. So what he's speaking about is that we have to remember in context the previous verses that he's spoken about as far as deception is concerned. So Jesus is continuing to show us how do you distinguish a true Christian from a false one. And he refers to a house. A house, of course, is shelter. It's, it's refuge from a storm. And when a storm comes, you want a strong, stable, secure house. That's where you want to be. My dog's like that. He wants to be in a strong, secure house. Last night when that lightning starts, every time lightning starts, my wife says, Watson's about to sleep with us. Yep, otherwise you're going to be scratching on that door and barking all night. So I said, if I don't get up and let him in, you're going to get up and let him in. So she got up and let him in. And he slept with us last night. Why? He wants to be secure. He wants to be in our room with us and he feels secure. Well, we all want that, right? When a storm comes, we want to be secure from that storm. We want a strong house with a good foundation. And that's what Jesus points out. And he says a faulty foundation, one that is not good, will cause a house to fall, to collapse because the foundation was not strong. I, I can remember, I guess it's been almost... 20 years ago, I think it was in uh, 2004, when Hurricane Iving hit Gulf Shores, Orange Beach, Romar Beach, all right in there. And I can remember someone uh, flying along and just videoing all the beach houses that were right there on the beach. I mean, these beautiful beach houses that were collapsing. Why? Because their foundation had been washed away. Uh, A friend of mine that owns a bed and breakfast down there he bought it from this judge, and this judge went on out closer to the water, and he built his beautiful home out there. And I remember seeing the judge's beautiful home had collapsed because the foundation was gone. And that's what happens when a foundation is gone. Now, now Scripture teaches clearly that Jesus is our foundation. He's the foundation of the church. He's the cornerstone. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and, and, and all of that. We know that. There's no doubt about that. But here, foundation has a different context than that. Again, we have to remember the context that Jesus has here. He's speaking about one's profession, the proof that you are a true believer. Listen to what Andrew Fuller says about this passage. Our Lord is not discoursing on our being justified by faith, but on our being judged according to our works, which, 
though inconsistent with others, is not the same thing, but must not be confounded with it. The character describes is not the self-righteous rejecter of the gospel, but one who, though he may hear it and profess to believe it, yet brings forth no corresponding fruit. It is not a passage suited to expose the error of the Romanists. It's talking about the Roman Catholic Church when he says the Romanists. But one which needs to be pressed upon Arminians who hold only belief and all is well. Do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying, like I mentioned already, this is not dealing with justification. This is dealing with sanctification. And that if you're truly converted, then it will be evident by your fruit. And then he brings in about the antinomians. The antinomians were anti, they were, what, anti against the law. So they didn't live according to God's law. So he's pointing out that this passage deals with how we live. Now, verse 24, he says, therefore. Now, I don't have to explain the therefore, do I? I mean, many, many times I've explained. You always look at what's before. That's what the therefore is. And he's indicating, Jesus is indicating that he's drawing this conclusion about all that he's already taught us in the Sermon on the Mount. What has he taught us? Well, just recently in chapter 7, he's taught us that we must enter where? Through the narrow gate. Only one person at a time can go through that night. You must enter through the narrow gate. You must also avoid false prophets. There's many false prophets. Avoid them. Don't listen to them. They don't have the truth. They'll deceive you. They'll lead you astray. And then he deals with an empty profession. So those are the main three things that he's just dealt with. And again, he emphasizes how crucial it is to render obedience to his precepts. Now, that is what reveals whether we are truly Christians. The commentator John Brown says, It certainly follows that he who hears and does our Lord's saying is a wise man that he who hears them and does them not, children, you can answer that, is a fool. So he who hears and does is wise man. He who does not is a fool. Matthew Henry says, it's not enough to hear Christ saying and understand them, hear them and remember them, hear them and talk about them, repeat them, dispute them. There's a lot of people that's able to do all that. But we must hear and do them. This do, and thou shalt live. Those only that hear and do are blessed and are akin to Christ. Did you hear that? This do, and thou shalt live. Those only. Did you hear that? There's, like I said last week, there's no such thing as a cardinal Christian. There's only those who do them and don't do them. He says that only those who hear and do them are blessed and are kin to Christ. And then Pink again says, They who think they are savingly trusting in the blood of Christ while 
disregarding His commands or fatally deceiving themselves. Remember that quote by Pink. Hopefully you will have an opportunity to share that with someone. Let me tell you what A.W. Pink says. Now, most people are not going to know who A.W. Pink is. But anyway, that'll maybe get them to go find out who A.W. Pink is. But say to them, he says that they who think they're savingly trusting in the blood of Christ while disregarding his commands are fatally deceiving themselves. Now, are you keeping his commandments? You know, you're shacking up with someone right now. The scripture says fornication. Um, I think there's a command against that. Uh, I think Pink would say that you're disregarding his commands. And therefore, Pink would say that you're fatally deceiving yourself. See, give Pink all the credit. That way they can't get mad. If you won't get mad, get mad at Pink. He's the one that says. Now, Pink is only quoting what Christ says also. Then you can go and quote what Christ says. If you love me, keep my commandments. You're not loving Christ because you're not keeping his commandments. We need to be blunt with folks, people. Do we not realize that these folks are dying and going to an everlasting hell? If a person was going down the road and you knew the bridge was out and you stood by and to have a good trip... No, what are you going to do? If you know that bridge is out, you're going to say, stop, stop, the bridge is out. You're going to fatally die. And we need to do the same thing for these people who are living in sin. We don't need to play games with them. Well, you know, I know you made a decision when you were 12 years old, and you're just a carnal Christian. No, no. Don't quote the lies of Satan. Be blunt with them. Speak the truth in love. Now, I don't, I'm not saying don't be, uh, don't be ugly to them. I'm saying speak the truth in love to them. Say, look, do you not realize what God's Word said? Do you believe God in God? Do you believe that God gave us this Bible? And see, that's the problem. Most of them don't believe in God, and they don't believe this is God's Word. That, that's the whole issue. But we need to be honest with them. Now, Matthew 25, verses 1 through 12, I'm not going to read them due to time, but uh, Jesus gives us the parable of the wise virgin and the foolish virgin, which, which is a parallel for what we have here because we're speaking of the wise and the foolish here as well. So we have this passage that helps us to understand this one because in both cases there's a major difference between the character of these individuals. You both First are builders, and both are virgins. Now, if you go forth and meet the bride with your lamp in your head, hand, there were those whose lamp was full, and there were those whose lamp was empty. But we see, again, in both cases, the latter is found lacking when put to the test and meets an irreversible disaster. In this passage, what happens? A storm comes and the house completely falls apart. Disaster. In uh, chapter 25, when Jesus returns and the virgin has no oil, disaster. I don't know you. So we see that the bridegroom arrives and is foolish 
because the door has been closed. They went to try to get oil, and when they came back, the door was closed. So we see two classes of individual where they professed, but there was nothing externally. And the truth was hidden until when? The day of judgment. They thought everything was okay until the day of judgment. They had a faulty foundation and they lacked oil in their vessel. So Matthew 28 helps us to understand this passage. Both are fools and both are surprised. Now notice, back over in our passage, chapter 7, Jesus says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine, and what? And does them. There's millions who say they believed in Jesus Christ. I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. But they do not do His precepts. They do not practice His precepts. And Jesus is saying right here, Hear these sayings of mine and what? Does them. It's sad that many preachers give only half a gospel. Now what do I mean by that? They'll say, now you need to believe in Jesus Christ. You need to trust in Jesus Christ. Correct. But that's only half of gospel. What does it mean to believe? Who is Jesus Christ? What does Jesus Christ require of us? What do we need to be saved from? And of course, they'll quote John 3, 16, which is a good passage. They'll quote Acts 16, uh, 31. Cry out, as uh, the Philippian jailer was told, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thou household. So we see quite clearly we're called to believe. But belief intellectually and belief savingly are two different things. See, the problem is they don't explain what true belief means. They don't emphasize that you've got to repent of something. You've got to forsake sin. You've got to deny self. You've got to call your call to obedience. I mean, how often have you heard... Someone quote Galatians 6.15. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcised nor uncircumcised availeth anything but a new creation. So therefore, pressing upon a person, there must be a new creation. There must be a change of heart. There must be a repentance. There must be a change of lifestyle. Or what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 19, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commands of God is what matters. Some of you didn't even know that verse was in the Bible, did you? Did you hear that? Keeping the commands of God is what matters. Now, of course, keeping the commands doesn't save you, but keeping commands, what does it do? It reveals that you are a Christian. You keep them because you love them. Thy commands, thy law, I love, O God, as David said. You love them and you want to keep them. That's your heart's desire. And it reveals that your heart has been changed. See, the issue is submission. 
Submission to divine authority. Walking in submission to Christ's will. This is not often spoken of by many. And such irresponsibility is inexcusable in the pulpit today. That's the reason why there are so many lost people in the church today. It's because pastors do not bring these truths. The whole gospel must be proclaimed. I mean, if you place these three verses side by side, you attain a complete balanced picture. We are not vitally united to Christ unless we have been born again. We are not born again unless we profess a faith that worketh by love. And we have not His saving faith unless it is, it is evident by keeping God's commandments. Those three things. Now what we see in these verses is that Jesus continues to insist on the necessity of practical godliness. If you regard or disregard Christ's teaching in your life, He likens you to one who builds a house either on rock or sand. Judgment Day will reveal that. Only those who have a solid foundation a foundation which renders sincere obedience to the law of Christ, will endure the test and remain and stand for eternity. But the one that hears Christ saying and simply talks about repentance, but never repents, he may admire Christ's teaching, but never render personal submission to them, he shall be put to utter confusion on that day. And Christ simply reinforces what he has said throughout this sermon. All the way back to the very beginning when he says that unless your righteousness, unless my righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Did you hear that? Unless your righteousness exceeds the most righteous people of Jesus' day, outwardly speaking, unless it exceeds theirs, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. See, it isn't sufficient enough to simply praise practical righteousness. It must be embodied in your personal character and conduct. Saving faith is a believing in Christ and His teaching and obeying them. Now second, who are represented by the wise and the foolish man? If you look at the parallel passage to the Sermon on the Mount in Luke chapter 6, Verses 47 through 49, listen to them. Luke chapter 6, parallel passage, beginning in verse 47. Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them. There's again the emphasis. We see that over and over Christ. He's emphasizing doing them. I will show you whom he's like. 
He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the streams beat vehemently against the house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. And he who hears and did nothing is like a man who builds a house on earth without foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of the house was great. See, we see that on the day of testing, judgment day, it is not what you and I say. Remember, again, the previous verses, they said, Lord, look at what we've done, cast out demons, wonderful signs, we call you Lord, all of that. It's not what we say. That's the emphasis here. It is what we do by the grace of God. Now, I emphasize the grace. It's what we do by the grace of God. It's not what you do in your own strength. It's what you do by the grace of God. God working in you. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, Paul says. What? That which God has worked in you. So when he works grace in you, then you work it out. It will be evident. It's how we walk. So the evidence is not our profession that we make, but how we walk each day. If we have been changed by the God's grace, it'd be obvious. It'd be obvious to us by what we desire, and it would be obvious to others in how we live our life. The doctrines we believe will be known by the fruit that we bring forth. It would be useless to plead those extraordinary gifts. Oh, I used all those gifts in the church to serve you, Lord. It would be useless to say I was a leader in the church and I did those things in the name of Christ. Those things are useless if we did not wear His yoke and follow His commands. See, real practical godliness is the only thing which will prove that we are Christ on that day of judgment. Personal holiness. Now, personal holiness is not esteemed in our day. So, don't think that if you live a godly life that people are going to praise you for that. But it will be esteemed in that day, judgment day. What does Hebrews 12, 14 say? Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Did you hear that? Without which no one will see the Lord. Do you see how important holiness is, practical godliness? If you don't have it, you're not going to see the Lord. That means you're not saved. Do you understand that? Do you really believe that? Do you really believe what the Word of God says without which no one will see the Lord? If you don't have holiness, you're not going to see the Lord. Do you really believe that? Then how are you lining up to what the Word of God says? See, therefore, the man who acts wisely is the one who takes Christ's commandments seriously. 
Christ's commandments regulates his life every single day. When he gets up and he heads to work, it regulates his life and what he's going to do. That's God's roadmap for us. How do I treat my fellow man? Well, the scripture tells us, right? Love him as you would love yourself. Now, that's not an easy thing to do. Uh, Today, coming to church this morning, I was trying to get off of I-20 on the 49, and I looked in my rearview mirror, and here comes a guy. He's probably doing 80 to 90 miles an hour, and he wants to get over too, and I've already turned my blinker, and I'm about to get over. And if I'd have got over, he'd hit me just like happened years ago when we were at Ridgewood. Same thing happened. A guy doing about 90. When I got over, he decided to hit me. I said, well, I'm not going to do that again. When I saw him coming, I, I just let him go on by. But I wasn't very happy about that. How dare you drive like that? How dare you want to hit me again like I was hit? I mean, it upsets you. And I think there is a righteous anger because he was breaking the law. But at the same time, we have to also consider what God says. I mean, consider the fool, the scripture tells us. And I believe the guy's a fool in the way that he was driving. is very dangerous. But yet everything we do must be governed by God's word, his law that he has given us. The wise man is one who hears these sayings, Christ said, who comes to Christ. This involves a turning away from this world, forsaking this world, and doing the will of Christ. These sayings of mine, Jesus says, which refers to the principles that Jesus has spoken about throughout this Sermon on the Mount for all three chapters that we've looked at. That's what Jesus is referring to. So here we have the teaching of Christ, and he's saying, live out the Christian life. If you want to know how to live out the Christian life, go to my sermon. Go to the Sermon on the Mount. Study it. We've done that. I don't know how long, what, two years or something like that. I've tried to take my time, and you, I know some of you say, boy, you have taken your time, to go through it. Why? So that you might be able to digest it, so that you might meditate on it from week to week, so that it might become a part of your life, the Christian life. This is our rule book. This is our guide. This is our map for daily living. How do you treat your fellow man? Look at the Sermon on the Mount. How do you treat God? Look at the Sermon on the Mount. How do you treat your wife? Look at the Sermon on the Mount. And I could go on and on and on. Everything we do is found in this sermon. Do you see how important it is for us to live according to what God says? And if you do, guess what? You're a wise man, not a fool. And I hope and pray that you want to be a wise man. For a wise man is one who comes to Christ and he hears the instructions that Christ gives him. And he does not argue with those instructions. He doesn't say, Lord, that's difficult to do. No, he says what? Lord, give me strength to do it. Give me a greater love for those things that you said here, Lord. Lord, Lord, the flesh is weak. But the spirit is willing. I want to be obedient to you. I want to submit to you. I want to 
demonstrate that I love God and I love you and I love others and I want to do your teachings. I want to humbly submit. I want to submit, so uh, meditate upon your words. And you cry out, teach me, O God. For I want to know more because I want to be holier. I want to be more like Christ. I don't want to be satisfied with a little dab. I want all of it. I want to be as holy as a man can be here on this earth. It involves realizing that these sayings of Christ contain not only a good counsel, but an imperative. Therefore, I will not disregard that was as vital for my life because I know if I disregard it, then it's a spiritual peril. So therefore, I put them into practice so that I'm able to abstain from those things which Christ forbids me of and do what pleases Him with great joy. See, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. John 13, 7. Did you hear that? If you know these things, then happy are you that do them. See, obeying God brings great joy. You know, there's people a lot of time, they're sad, uh, they're, they're discouraged, they're depressed. Let me tell you why. They're not doing what Christ says here. See, it says here, if you do these things, happy are you if you do them. If you want happiness, don't listen to Joel Osteen. If you want happiness, do what Christ says. Be obedient. Know these things and happy are them that know. Know God's word, know, obey God's word, know his commandment and do them and you will be happy. I guarantee it. See, the word does is so important. Do our Lord's will. Do what He teaches us here in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't give mere outward performance because that's not what He's requiring. He's requiring a personal relationship and fellowship with Him so that your life is conformed to His will. Christian's entire being is submissive. And our affections must be regulated by them. Our will governed by them. Our thoughts dominated by them. Then our actions can't help but be united with them. And one of the important things about that, as far as we as parents are concerned, is that that must be demonstrated to our children. Our children must see that Christ is the center of everything that we do, that Christ regulates everything that we do, that God, Christ governs our life, and our thoughts are dominated by Christ. They must see that. If they don't see that, then they will see you as a hypocrite, and they won't want what you got. So therefore, you must display that relationship that you have with God. Paul states in Colossians 3, 16, let the words of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, 
and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. How the word of Christ must dwell in you in all wisdom and teaching. See, here we have a process, a a spiritual process, a spiritual cultivation. As we see in John or James 1.21, lay aside all filthiness. I don't have to explain that to you, do I? I think we all know what filthiness is. Lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and I don't think I have to explain that to you. If we are to receive with meekness the implanted Word, which is able to save your soul. Do you hear that? So it's speaking about what repentance. Lay aside all wickedness and, and our filthiness and lay aside all wickedness. And then what? Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. See, the Word of God must be implanted in you. The Word of God is implanted in you by the Spirit of God. And when the Spirit of God implants the Word of God in you, what happens? Transformation. Transformed by what? The renewing of our mind. In other words, now we have a new mind. A mind that thinks godly. A mind that seeks after Christ. A mind that seeks to do the things of Christ. Now this is nothing short of what constitutes a genuine conversion. When you have the Word of God implanted in you, then you are converted. And if you're converted, then you will be a doer of the Word. So can you see that this rock that the Lord speaks of, that represents a wise man building a house, is the truth which Jesus Speaking of these sayings of Christ, we're to understand them, we're to believe them, and obey them. And if we understand them and we believe them and obey them, you will not hear, depart from me, I never knew you. You understand that? If you want assurance of salvation, go to the Word of God. If you want assurance of salvation, understand what I just said. The sayings of Christ understand them, believe them, and obey them. And if that's the case in your life, it gets proof that you have been truly converted. And you won't be fearful on that judgment day. But you don't understand them. If you haven't truly ever believed them, and you're not obeying them, all you have at this moment is to face a terrible judgment that will come. But my prayer is that you will flee to Christ for a new heart. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your spirit 
would take these words that have been spoken and sanctify them and use them for thy glory and thy honor. Pray, Father, that no one would be confused, but, Father, that revelation would be revealed. Work in our midst by your Spirit to do that which only your Spirit can do. I'm opening eyes to see and understand thy truth. And it's in Christ's name we pray.